Well, hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blanc, and I'm excited that you are here. We're about a month away from DealMaker Live, and it's all virtual, of course, and uh, we're going to have an unbelievable roster of multifamily experts and other personal development. We're going to have people who just did their first deal. We have people who just quit their job. This is uh, really about real people doing real deals. So check it out. It's DealMakerLive.com event.com is where you can still grab tickets. Luckily, we're not capped at 500 like we did it in person. So grab your tickets. They're, of course, more affordable as well. Dealmakerliveevent.com is a place to get those tickets. Make sure you don't miss out. So today, we're going to get a kind of an update from a heavy hitter, Michael Becker. Michael was on the on the show long time ago in episode 64, where we interviewed him after his uh, long slash short road to 1,000 units from zero in about 12 months. Super exciting. He has since then not really slashed off at all. He's accumulated over 10,000 units, sold 4,000, and he has a really, really good overview of what's going on. And uh, so we're going to talk about collections, uh, what's happened over the last few months, what he expects to do. He pulls out his crystal ball, looks inside of it, and we talk about uh, new deal flow. When can we expect it? What terms can we expect? What about capital, capital markets? What's going to happen to those? And when can we expect the thawing of that? And how do we underwrite deals now in this new world? What is the new world order of multifamily investing? Let's get right in the show. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. If you're a high achiever and you value mentoring, anytime you get something new, you have a coach or a mentor of some sort, and you want to fast track your success with multifamily investing, then consider our mentoring program. Go to themichaelmunk.com forward slash mentor. And you can schedule a free call with us, a strategy session, and uh, we'll try to help you, point you in the right direction. If mentoring is for you, that's great. If not, we'll give you some other resources as well. So we're just really excited about our, our mentoring program. The successes our students are having are just really awesome. So excited about it. We're really helping people change their lives with multifamily investing and quit their jobs. That is kind of what makes me get up every single morning. And a really powerful tool is our mentoring program. So it's so michaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Let's get in the show with Michael Becker. Michael, welcome to the show today. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been a little while. My gosh, you were on episode 64, which was, I don't know, about 12 years ago or something. And uh, <laughs> something feels like it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been pretty cool. We've been able to hang out uh, since then at various events at DealMaker Live and also on the, on the Real Estate Guys cruise. So it's great to have you back on the show. Uh, so many things have happened. Uh, I think on our last episode, which was amazing enough, you had a pretty short path toward, from zero to 1,000 units, which was pretty amazing. And uh, you know, since 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 then, maybe accumulated a couple since then. But get us up to get us up to speed a little bit. What uh, what you've kind of done since then? Yeah. So let's see. I uh, well, I've done almost ten thousand units basically, and we we currently own about six thousand units. So we've we've done one or two since uh, since a thousand doors. Yeah, I've been pretty busy. So I'm based in, in Dallas. So we we own Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin. Those are two primary markets that we focus on. Um, and really been over the last several years, the first deals we bought were kind of really true workforce housing, Michael. And we've kind of um, over the years steadily traded up. So kind of sold old, bought new. So kind of went from the C class to the B class, to kind of the A minus A. So we still own a variety of everything. Uh, but we got mostly out of the C class, really have one C class deal left. And then we have a handful of B class deals. And then uh, uh, the majority of what we own is kind of A or A minus. So really kind of been, took advantage of what, what it felt like uh, inefficiency in the marketplace where for the last several years, all the cap rates were kind of on top of each 
each other. So what used to be a wider spread between the top of the grade class A and the bottom of the grade class C or D kind of all were on top of each other. So we'd sell something old and buy something new at the same or similar cap rate. And that's kind of how we got to where we are today. Yeah, that's great. I think one of the things that struck me when I first interviewed you was the power of joint venturing is at the time you had met someone, I think it was in the Bay Area or California, who basically had a bunch of money to invest and you were in the mortgage brokerage business. So you had access to deals. And that partnership really kind of really sped things up significantly. How were you able to scale rather quickly since then? Because you you have gone to 10,000 units sold, I don't know, about 4,000 or so. How have you been able to scale so rapidly? Talk about systems, people, capital, deal flow, anything like that. Yeah, I mean that, that certainly was was part of it having access to some capital. You know, having we had when we first started out, we had one or, or really kind of one, and then turned into two, and now three really high net worth guys that kind of joint ventured with us to kind of do deals one off. And then after we did, you know, the first four transactions we did were all joint venture kind of structure. Then we went into the syndication model where we would go, you know, raise a hundred thousand kind of minimum, hundred thousand at a time, go, go raise, you know, multiple millions of dollars. And then we started kind of doing that. So we'll do a little bit of joint venture anymore, but most of it's uh, syndication for the last several years. And so that's certainly been helpful having, having, um, you know, access to capital and variety of capital. I think one of the things that really kind of helped me um, was actually selling some of these first deals we did. You know, we got in and out of uh, several of these deals in, you know, two years, three years kind of time frame that we thought would be five. But, you know, we started buying in 2013. So, you know, seven years ago, it was, uh, you know, uh, not only were we able to buy at attractive prices, we we did pretty well implementing our business plan, but then rent screw and cap rates compressed. So we kind of looked like geniuses. So we took some stuff that we thought we would double in five years and we tripled it in two. And uh, returning some capital and having that story to go out and tell the marketplace attracts more capital. Mm. So, you know, that's one of the things I think certainly it helped us kind of on the scaling side. Um, you know, and some other things we implemented some technology to kind of help a little bit on the efficiency side. So we use uh, an investor database now, which helps us kind of communicate with our investors, track track distributions, helps on the equity rate side to make it a little bit more efficient. And that's certainly been been some of the things that really kind of helped on on the scale. Um, and then as we as we got more and more units, you know, we had to scale up some of the personnel as well. So started with you know two guys and and one employee, and so three of us in the company, and then we kind of now grew to, to nine people and kind of had, you know, asset management help, administrative help, accounting help, various other functions. Um, and we can manage, you know, over 6,000 units with nine people and a third party management company in place. So that's kind of really um, some of the things we've done. I'm happy to expand upon any of those topics if you want me to. Well, what are some of the biggest challenges that you had uh, that you really had to deal with during that time? Um, you know, a lot of this is kind of finding money, finding deals. That's really kind of how you get paid in, in the business. And so we, um, you know, then you had to do all that while you, while you try to keep the, the wheels on the bus, you know, per se, and keep everything going. So just, you know, a good example is this last year, we 2019 tax return season, we had to do, uh, like somewhere between 11 and 1200 K1. So how do you do all that and get that out by February, you know, February systems and processes and staying on top of it. And it's an ever growing problem. The more deals you do, the more K1s you get and and just start staying on top of stuff like that. So really just kind of focusing on systematizing it. So the first couple of years, 
you know, it was a little bit more of a leap show, you know, trying to stay organized and get on top of it. And then I think one thing we always did was just kind of be try to be self-critical and analyze all the things that we did wrong, try to do like a post-mortem after we do a deal or, or, or some major project. What went well? What went wrong? What are some things we don't want to do again? And how can we improve the process? We just ever, ever continually tweak all these, these processes and make them a little bit better incrementally over time. And when you first start out, the incremental changes are big. And then now, fortunately, most of the changes that we, we do are relatively minor um, as far as improving systems or processes. One of the things that we've uh, we've always struggled with, uh, and we've talked about this as well as some of our, our peers, is is the property management side of things. And and we have certainly started thinking and talking about creating our own property management company. You guys are still uh, using third party managers. What what are your thoughts on that moving forward? Uh, you know, I mean, I think we're certainly to the size where that can make some sense. But we we've just kind of chosen to partner with. Uh, with you know one property management company largely we we own a few assets in a small secondary market that we have a different company with but uh, we have one company and we're probably 30 30 35 percent of their business so you know we're a pretty large account for them and we're so geographically concentrated you know it, it, with two main markets it really really helps from kind of staying on top of stuff and we just really have chosen to try to grow with them versus kind of starting our own thing kind of diverse focus and you know no one cares about your money more than you do so I think all things being equal being fully vertically integrated, having a property management company in-house is probably better in a lot of respects. But if, uh, you know, I'm a banker by profession, my partner was a financial analyst. And, you know, I think of uh, property management as, you know, there's really three main functions. You got accounting, you got HR, and you got construction. So, you know, none of those things are in my background. And the last thing I want to do is accounting or HR or really construction uh, oversight from that perspective as well. So I just don't think that's really the, the best fit for what we want to do. And even if I hired some to kind of run and be the president of the management company, I'd still be involved in it probably more than I really, really want to. So with, you know, a good quality management company, having a pretty large stick to kind of carry around there being such a large percentage of them. And then we have a, you know, very seasoned, experienced asset manager that we hired that had, you know, 15 years of experience for some larger companies, brought him in-house. And he's really kind of brought some more institutional type of oversight to, to our assets. Yeah, so we're in some some really bizarre times, right? It's uh, you know with a pandemic going on. Uh, let's look at look at your portfolio, kind of how how you guys are doing and dealing with it now, and then maybe look forward to see what the quote new normal is going to look like. I mean, how have your collections been? You know, looking back April, May, uh, you know June, something like that. What are you guys seeing? Yeah, you know, for for really the only full month of collections we have as of the recording is April. So we have, um, you know, we received ninety seven and a half percent of collective uh, scheduled rents were collected. So about two and a half percent delinquent, which you know, normal months probably somewhere between uh, half a percent and three quarters of a percent. So we're maybe four times higher delinquent than normal. But all things considered, that's that's a win. And as we're as we're um, you know, in, in uh, May is kind of tracking to be probably pretty similar to April. I think at the end of the day, we'll be a little bit more delinquent than we were um, in April, but, you know, it's not going to fall through the floor or anything. So, you know, what was two and a half percent is probably going to be somewhere between three and a half and four percent when it's all said and done is kind of where my, my crystal ball is right now. Um, so, you know, all things considered, that's pretty, pretty good. And those are really the, the you know, Texas markets and, you know, what, what has been um, interesting kind of two things to me. Uh, one's pretty obvious, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we kind of span the property grade from C to B to A, you know, kind of, uh, all in between. So generally speaking, the more workforce, the closer it is, the older the deal, the more C-class it is, uh, the higher the delinquency generally is, the uh, closer it is to kind of newer, nicer 
better located stuff, you know, our delinquency is lower, which makes sense because you think of someone that lives in a C-class deal, they generally go somewhere to do work. You know, they uh, they do construction, their server at a restaurant, something along those lines where they physically have to be somewhere to, to earn income where, you know, some people have a little bit more white collar jobs, can work from their, their home. So they tend to not have quite as much uh, disruption in their income. So that, that certainly was obvious. The other thing that was not quite, so it was a little bit more surprising to me is why while our um, leasing traffic is probably down 50-60% over kind of same period prior year, our actual leasing is only down maybe 10 or 15%. So the demand is still there to lease units, at least so far through this crisis that they're at, you know, people out there are still, still moving, still, still trying to, uh, you know, lease units. So it's just the people that are out there are, are serious about it. They're not like looky-loos. They're not kind of shopping. If you're looking for an apartment, you're, you're serious about moving right, right, right now. And so our actually leasing has been much better than I, than I feared, um, you know, when the stuff started hitting the fan and kind of March. Yeah, interesting. You're absolutely right. Our conversions are higher also as a percentage because people who are out and about, they have, they have a reason to be out and about. <laughs> they're not just oh, yeah. window shopping. Uh, the other thing that surprised us, Thankfully, is we were kind of concerned about strategic defaults, tenants just choosing not to pay yeah. rents because they saw something on CNN that you know said that you don't have to pay rents anymore. And we didn't see that uh, happening much at all, thankfully. So people still felt like, hey, gosh, there's so much uncertainty. Let it not be my house or my my apartment. You know, I'll deal with everything else. And so at least they're paying the rents. But what do you kind of what do you think kind of uh, the recovery here moving forward? I used to think that it was more of a V-shaped. I'm not so sure anymore. I don't see how that's possible, right? I mean, it might be more like a W or, you know, certainly the, what is it? They say the L shape or the Nike swoosh kind of kind of thing. So I think it's going to be slow and long, um, you know, for sure. I can't imagine we snap right back. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, obviously there's going to be quite a bit of disruption. going to be somewhere around 30% unemployment uh, here here very shortly. And, and I mean, you know, we can't do that without having, you know, massive re- uh, ramifications. So thank God we're in housing instead of uh, retail or, or you know, God forbid hospitality. So we're in much better shape there. But yeah, Michael, I think it's gonna gonna be a long time. I mean, you know, I think probably of the say if we hit thirty percent unemployment, you know, I don't know how many of those are gonna actually jobs come back, maybe half, mm. you know. So then you're looking at fifteen percent unemployment when we were like somewhere around four. So, you know, three to four times kind of the stabilized unemployment to kind of pre crisis. It'll take a, a period of time for that to kind of work its way down. And so, you know, I think I think that's certainly gonna be an issue. I think we're fortunate in the multi housing space because, you know, obviously our, our products get used more than ever because people are just literally in their home. So I think kind of to, to some of the previous comments that you and I both had, I think we're going to hold up okay. I, I do expect to see some rent softening. You know, we're starting to kind of see that a little bit. So instead of getting rent growth, we're going to see your know, rent softening. I don't know if we hit double digits. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. I mean, every metro is going to be a little different, but I, I think we probably stay in the single digits on the, the rent softening, and then we kind of stabilize and, and start growing from that base there. Um, we're going to start seeing supply constrict. Obviously, they're going to they're going to finish off what's under construction, and then it's going to be a while before they build any, any more. So that should certainly help us. And then obviously, with um, people losing their incomes, maybe they lose their homes. You know, that probably will increase the renter pool ultimately at the end of the day because there's going to be more and more people that have financial problems and, you know, poor people rent and rich people might own homes. So it'll kind of increase the base of, of the rental pool, generally speaking. So I think, you know, in the long term, we're going to be good. And then from like a pricing standpoint, I mean, I think we'll see some sort of disruption. 
again, every market is going to be a little bit different, but I think the markets that we're doing a little bit better, uh, kind of the, I, I use the term like economic, we've seen a lot of economic migration over the last, you know, couple of decades where people are fleeing really high tax, high cost states like New York, Connecticut, California, a lot of like kind of the, the middle class people have been fleeing to Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona, places similar to that kind of in the Sun Belt. And I think that this kind of further continues that, that whole migration that we've been seeing and maybe even accelerates it away from, from, you know, high density place like New York city or San Francisco, where you're a little bit more worried about your health and obviously taxes are an issue and, and, you know, to become a bigger issue when, uh, when the, the revenues of those states, the cities kind of get decimated through this whole crisis. So I think the winners of that, plus when we start onshoring some of these jobs that went to China and Asia and some other places, uh, those jobs that come on to do manufacturing and, and some of these other things, those jobs aren't going to New York city or California. They're going to go to Florida, Texas, Arizona, or, or similar type places to, to that kind of the middle part of the country. So I think we'll be disproportionately beneficiary of this uh, in, in states like that. So my view is, you know, I think the next 12 months are going to be pretty tough. So the first 12 months of this is going to be pretty tough with the amount of money they're printing with them keeping the interest rates as low as they are, I think in 10 years, we're going to see materially higher pricing, you know? So I think if you can hang out for the next 12 months and 10 years, we're probably going to see double to triple the the pre-COVID pricing. Uh, and if you have, you know, 25, 30% down payment, you're going to, you're going to get rich. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot, a lot of wealth being created here. Speaking of wealth creation, you know, what are you seeing on the new deal flow right now? I mean, obviously everything's in flux right now. Capital markets are changing almost every single day. Sellers are, everyone's kind of paralyzed. And, but what do you kind of see? What are you seeing? What's your prediction on the new deal flow and, you know, for the next 12 months? Yeah, so nothing for a while. Um, I think everything's basically stopped. So the only deals that are really going to happen, I think, in the second quarter, largely speaking, are, are going to be stuff that kind of bled over, that were kind of either set pre-COVID or kind of almost set, and then maybe got a price adjustment and still are going to close. So it's going to the deal volume is going to be very, very minimal. I think uh, you know, so the faucet's kind of off, right? So the faucet, especially for debt, was like full, full on or in you know, January, February, and then March, it just got shut off, you know, it didn't get kind of turned off as, or slowly as quickly. And then when it comes back on, it comes back on slow. So I think in the third quarter, we'll probably see a couple drops, you know, a couple deals here and there. Fourth quarter, I think we'll see, you know, maybe a little small trickle and then kind of 2021 forward, I think we'll see a steady stream and increase in growing. The so lenders start kind of getting their their legs around them a little bit, understanding what the new normal is. Right now, there's so much uncertainty that, you know, when there's so much uncertainty, no one does anything. So you kind of, kind of freeze. So what's happening, you know, like we're a good example of this. We had two deals in escrow and one deal on the market all kind of going on. So one, we were like two days away from closing. So we missed it by two days. Oh. Um, uh, the buyer's lender froze two days before and, and that really sucked. Right. And then, uh, the other one, we were just in escrow like a week or a week or two. And then uh, that person, that buyer backed out uh, as well. And then we had one on the market that was going really well. And then all of a sudden we just kind of pulled it back on the market. So those of us like, like me and my situation, I don't need to sell. I'm not forced to sell. There's no distress in my, my economic situation. So we're just going to pull back. We're going to wait. And then we're going to kind of see how this plays out. And then we'll decide at some future point in time to sell. Those that are distressed or, you know, it's too early to have recognized that distress really all the way through. So if they um, you're having issues, if you were having issues before this, uh, this is going to magnify those issues. If you're pretty healthy, you certainly have some runway. So those that are having issues now, 
I mean, they're going to have, you know, many months of lifeline kind of put to them by the lenders uh, agreeing to forbearance. So if, you know, you're having issues with April and May and June collections, you go to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, which is most likely one of your lenders, and they'll give you 90 days no matter what. And then you kind of come out of it, uh, a forbearance, you kind of come out of it, you probably have a couple months of lending around. It's really probably going to be the fourth quarter before the lenders really start taking aggressive actions against those people. So that's when I kind of start thinking that that's, that's why I'm thinking we'll start seeing a little bit of deal flow there and they're really kind of 2021, these deals will start clearing. Um, and, you know, if you own a stabilized deal, you'd be crazy to sell it right now. So stabilized, well-performing deals are just going to kind of go away. So the stuff that's going to trade or largely be kind of distressed deals and you need the lenders to come back. So I think that, you know, if you want to talk about lending, we can talk about that. But I mean, you know, really that that's going to drive a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, as a former banker, we can't not talk about lending, Michael, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, let's 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 talk about that. I mean, when it first hit, we immediately terms changed like uh, like literally overnight, twelve months yep. escrows, and we're like, oh my gosh, I killed every single deal. Now, interestingly, since that has happened, there was a couple deals that we were pursuing where the seller was very motivated. They were in the middle of a 1031 exchange and they dropped their price. They allowed uh, to allow for the, the underwriting of the escrow. They allowed for a financing contingency, believe it or not, and no more deposit uh, hard on day one. So that was very yep. interesting. That's certainly not commonplace, but it was a very interesting reaction to, to that. And then sometimes now we're getting quoted with only six month reserve. So it's, and then the loan to value is being cut uh, significantly. And it's like literally like quick, like, you know, even know what you're going to get. You, you you get a term sheet and you have no confidence that you'll have that next week or even certainly by closing. So kind of what are you what are you seeing right now? And then bridge lenders just you know stopped lending almost entirely, right? So so kind of what are you what are you seeing now on the on the capital markets for the next 12 months? Yeah, that's that's exactly the problem, right? I mean, everything's so so uncertain. So if you don't have certainty, you're not going to have confidence to go put a deal in escrow, certainly not with hard money. So yeah, the world's the world's completely different now than than it was, you know, uh, early March. So yeah, hard money's out the door. Financial contingencies are a thing again. You know, that's the, they were certain those two things were not a thing when I started buying apartments. You know, you can get a financial contingency. You didn't have to go hard with money, et cetera. And then you know that kind of as a, the market improved, those slowly went away until where you know it was uncommon to see that. Those are back in on the debt side. I mean, I think you're right. Fannie and Freddie are still going to lend to it. I think because they have a mandate to do that. I think they don't want to lend loans, which is why they're putting those 12 months of reserves up for principal interest, uh, taxes, and insurance. So it kind of economically makes these deals very challenging to do. So there's, there's that issue. They also only loan really on stabilized deals and on natural collections. So as these deals kind of get more and more distressed, you know, collections go down, your proceeds are going to cut even more and more. So I think it's going to be really challenging for a period of time to get the, the Fannie and Freddie loans on anything. So, and then as you mentioned, what wasn't there when I started buying, which which came in the really into vogue the last 18, 24 months, a lot of these uh, bridge lenders kind of buy a debt fund. So you have these non-recourse uh, bridge loans that would give you 80, 85% of cost and, you know, do it non-recourse and all, all these things. And so those are like totally out of the marketplace, right? So what I think is going to start happening is uh, the actual banks are going to, community banks, regional banks are going to start coming back and personal guarantees are going to be on the table, which were, you know, largely not required for, for the better part of the last seven, eight years. So, you know, until we start getting stability, the way these distressed deals are going to clear, they're going to be all cash purchases or some sort of recourse loan, or potentially if the, the seller had a 
Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan, you can come go assume that mortgage some some form or fashion. That, that might work as well. But until we kind of get those those deals kind of clear, we start getting some more stabilized stuff. Fannie Mae will start loaning kind of more normalized terms, and then we start the whole process back. So maybe that's a clue that uh, whenever we see the debt funds pop back in the marketplace with a high leverage non-recourse bridge debt, we're probably closer to the end of the cycle than we are the beginning of the cycle. So it's probably a clue of, uh, hey, I might want to think about, uh, you know, setting my deal, either selling it or putting some permanent debt on as we start seeing those lenders get back in the market, whatever the, that happens again. So we talked about some of the terms changing with capital markets, things of that nature. I mean, what are you doing? Are you, and, and, just, and there's plenty of, uh, plenty of people who are just simply just sitting on the sidelines right now. They're not doing anything. They've, you know, they've let their acquisitions guy go or they're doing something else, you know, make coffee or something. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know so, so what are you guys doing with regards to acquisitions? And, and if so, how are you changing your underwriting? Yeah, so besides riding my Peloton bike every day, which uh, I used to not do and not leaving my house. Yeah, no, in all seriousness, we're, we're trying to stay relevant. So I'm, I'm of the mindset that, uh, you know, even if there's no deals out there, there's always going to be some some deals trying to happen. And, you know, so we're trying to see everything that's kind of floating out there right now in the markets that we're in. Um, I fully don't expect us to really buy anything for, you know, the better part of the, the you know, second quarter, third quarter. So hopefully we can get something done in the fourth quarter. We'll... Time will tell, you know, how successful it's going to be. But I want to be an active market participant, you know, whatever form that is, whether that's just having a conversation with the brokers or whether that's um, you know, actually trying to underwrite a bunch of deals or buying them. You know, right now what we're seeing um, largely is either seeing the first, you know, couple deals that have some distress in them, you know, kind of hit the market, mm. you know, kind of off market. So I'm starting to see that a little bit, but, you know, the pricing is still, they're trying to clear these are deals that were fundamentally flawed when they when they bought them. They put wrong debt on it. They overlevered. They didn't manage it well. They didn't have the capital budget, or some combination of all that, right? So, and they're still trying to clear these things above debt level. So they're trying to say, hey, you know, I had two million in equities. Buy it for a million above debt. I'll take half a fifty percent loss and move on. And a lot of those deals probably need to clear at or below debt. So, you know, they're, they're not to that point because a lender will give them forbearance and they got some time. So I don't really see a whole lot of that kind of trading. You know, I am seeing some deals that were like going to go to market or were in escrow or about to be in escrow at say 10 million. And then now they're coming back out at nine and a half or nine and a quarter or something like that because they, they're trying to lower their price, but they aren't materially low enough to really kind of make it make it kind of clear the marketplace. So I'm seeing a lot of that it was kind of still still relatively um, pricing expectations kind of relatively similar, you know, with some discount, but relatively similar to, to kind of pre COVID. So I think that those aren't going to go anywhere either. Right. So the only reason the only buyers in the marketplace today would be if for some reason you got a 1031 uh, that you need to go kind of place and you got a massive tax hit, that's probably really the only buyers for something like that in the marketplace. And then, like I said, I think it's going to be fourth quarter. So we're going to stay, stay relevant. I'm talking to the brokers. I'm working, you know, any deals that come in, you know, that, that seems somewhat reasonable or underwrite, but you know, most of us kind of know that's too high. That's too crazy of a price. That's a, a terrible location, you know, and, and we're kind of passing on, on what little inventory is out there. But you know, if you're not in the market, if you're not kind of getting, real-time market data on kind of what what is trying to transact or what's trading or pricing's moving. You know, I can probably just track it in my head here, like, you know, okay, pricing was here, then it got a little lower, then it got a little lower. You know, at some point, it's going to make sense. We're just not quite to that point yet. And if you're just sitting on the sidelines, not doing anything, you're not going to know when, when, that, when the market turns and it gets cheap enough and it's ready to start going. Or, hey, my competitor down the street bought a deal. That's interesting. Let me figure out what the hell he saw I didn't see. And maybe it's time to get going again. Because at some 
some point someone's going to buy something and it's going to make us all think, huh, hmm. maybe, maybe it's time to go. We're just not to that point yet. Well, for just for example, I mean, lenders are requiring 12-month uh, escrow right now. So if you're underwriting a deal with 12-month escrow, it kind of depresses your returns. Then all of a sudden, if the capital markets were to turn and that would go to six months or go down to zero, all of a sudden that yeah. deal would be worth a lot more. And it could that's it very quickly will the valuations go up for for that. And the other factor, of course, is is uh, you know what's happening to NOI. You know, I was talking to Ken McElroy the other day, and he's not doing anything because he doesn't know right now. He doesn't want to catch a falling knife yeah. because you're getting ten thousand dollars less a door than you know last week. Great, but what if it's the bottom is more like twenty or thirty thousand dollars less? Like yeah, you or can't, forty. Who knows? Or 40, right? or, yeah, half. Right? We don't know. We have no idea, and so, but but it's a good point. We we tend to be more mindset. We're going to be a little more proactive as well, just to know what was going on. We have that relationship with those brokers, and then when we do see that turn, we want we want to, we want to be there. I mean, I don't have to buy it right on the bottom, you know, but I th- I think we'll know when you're like, oh my gosh, the fundamentals are like it's like I'm sure the way Warren Buffett buys companies, he goes, this is insane. Like, doesn't anyone see how cheap this is? <laughs> I'm buying right, yeah. even though there's blood in the streets and and um, and we don't we don't I don't think any of us have any confidence of where our collections are are going to be, you know, this month, next month. Right. The following month. So until we get some sort of confidence in where the income is going to be, I don't know how you can value anything else. And in Texas, uh, you know, we just got all our property tax notices out here, and the and the counties, uh, at least the ones that we're in, are still coming out with their knives out, and they're still assessing us because they they do it as of uh, January one values, kind of pre COVID, and you know we're seeing you know across the board the initial initial assessments were you know materially higher. Um, so we're having to fight through that, which will get them down. But, you know, it's just they, they didn't give you any sort of break mm. at all. I mean, it's probably as bad or worse than any of the last couple of years. I keep thinking there's going to be a year they take it easy on you. And they, they haven't yet. And then on top of that, you know, we're just in the process of, re- of renewing our insurance. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, double digit increases in insurance as well. So at the For time sure. where you have some uncertainty in your income, you're getting whacked with probably your second and third largest expense, when, at least in Texas, which is property taxes and uh insurance. So, you know, it's a, it's a challenging time from, you know, operational standpoint. So until there's some sort of clarity in, in what your how durable the income is going to be, I don't think you're going to see a lot of stuff clear, you know, that's it. so I don't think we see a lot of transactions until we kind of, kind of find where we, we think, okay, we're, we're somewhere close to the bottom here. So where where you kind of see yourself going as a company? And I'm back when we had you on the podcast a little while back. You know, it was great to have a thousand units. I don't know if you were thinking ten thousand at the time. Maybe you were, and now you have been at ten thousand. You've sold a bunch of stuff. Kind of what are you what are you thinking? You might, and obviously you don't. We don't know what the market's going to bring. But kind of where do you want to be? Let's say five years from now. Like yeah. what size or or you know because because we had this discussion, this philosophical discussion. Well, do I really want? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 units. Like, because if I do that, that's great. But now, now I have this giant company with all this. You said you don't want to get an HR. Now you're an HR, right? And so yeah, at one sure. point, you're like, you know what? This is pretty good. I'm just going to sell the, the stuff that does I don't like. And I'm just going to coast with my five guys or whatever, gals. You know, where are you right now with, uh, with kind of your plans for the next five years? Yeah, I mean, I think the goal in the fourth quarter when kind of we're planning out, you know, we do a, you know, one year, five year kind of plan and really kind of the midterm goal was by the end of 2021, try to be at 10,000 units that we, that we liked. So kind of sell some of the older stuff, buy some of the newer stuff and, 
continue that transition. So obviously that's going to get muted uh, along the way, or at least I think it does, unless there's just all the, all the deals in the world that we can go out and buy in 2021. But I don't think it's realistic to think that we're at 10,000 units into 2021 right now, but somewhere around that that range and, and probably kind of stabilize. That's kind of our current long-term goal and just make sure it's the right units that I want. You know, anything that's kind of more of a pain in the butt, we, you know, kind of call and get get out. And the ones that are easier to manage that are, that you know, do, do a little better, we kind of keep those. And then, you know, from there, kind of just tread water a little bit, do, do a couple of deals here and there, trade in, trade out. Um, I think that's probably kind of where we want to be. And with 10,000 units, we could probably run that with about 10 people in our company, um, you know, as long as we maintain that third-party management. So that's, prob- that's probably where we want to be. Maybe we get a little bigger, you know, there's always uh, always the, the lure of doing more, you know, especially when you, you, the more you do, the easier this gets as well. So if we could get the team to be, you know, super oiled and I'm, I'm a little bit more hands-off on a lot of it than I, than I historically have been, that'd make life a little bit easier, you know, because I'm finding buying and selling takes up a lot of time and now I have all uh, a whole lot of free time I just just wish I had a, the ability to go travel where I wanted to go travel and I have all these restrictions on us because you know it would be nice to be in Hawaii instead of Dallas right about now so you're you're trying to architect yourself out of the company a little bit so what would you do with your with yourself Michael if you had uh, all this free time yeah I don't know if I want to get fully out of it uh, you know a, a little bit you know somewhere between what I've been doing the last couple of months and uh, where I was before that would would be nice. You know, we were kind of going at a breakneck pace, and it was you know stressful and a lot of stuff going on. To you know, now while it's stressful for different reasons, not a whole lot going on. So it, it'd be good to be able to travel a little bit more for for pleasure instead of work. But you know, my kids are still relatively young, so my uh, youngest is in second grade. So we still got what ten more ten more school years before he's off in college or out of the house, right? So I you know I can't retire anytime soon because you know you you kind of anchor to, to the house. So I think I. Get Good, good another 10 years of really trying to grow. And, and then from there, hopefully we can be stabilized and now have a pretty well organized company with, you know, redundancy and, and you know, some people uh, to take some leadership roles that aren't so much, uh, you know, me that can, can run kind of the day to day. And I just kind of get to work on the stuff I want to work on. And so the stuff I don't want to work on. Yeah, it's great. It's good jam with you, Michael. How can people connect with you? Uh, really, there's two ways to find out more information about us. Uh, much like like Michael, we co-host a podcast called the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast. So you can find that on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere you're probably hearing my voice right now. We, we should be on there. Or you go to the website, which is oldcapitalpodcast.com. Or uh, the other way, the company I run is uh, SPI Advisory. So you can simply go to our company's website, which is www.spiadvisory.com. That's SPI, like spy, advisory.com. There, there's a contact us form. Uh, always happy to... Uh, you know, start a conversation with the uh, people I meet off of podcasts. That's awesome. Michael, great catching up with you. Thanks for being on the show. All right. Thanks, Michael. So there you have it. The new world order prediction by Michael Becker. Now, I'm, I'm really g- glad that we're in a multifamily space compared to almost any other space in entertainment, travel, restaurant, retail. And uh, I'm glad I don't no longer have my restaurants. I mean, uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, when I first started, I was an entre- entrepreneur. Well, I did flip a few houses here and there. What my big thing was restaurants. And I plowed my entire net worth with, from a software IPO in the restaurant business. And that last recession really lost all my money. I uh, added a couple hundred thousand dollars. I then on top of that, almost lost my house. And, you know, this is a difficult situation right now. I'm just glad I don't have those restaurants right now because I will tell you, I will have shuttered my restaurants within six weeks of this this situation just because the expenses are are gigantic and you're so reliant on on the revenue so i'm glad we're not there but if you're affected by this situation my prayers go out to you and the only thing i can say is as unpleasant as it was for me in the last recession 
it really shaped me as who I am. There are, you know, there were personality traits of mine that apparently need some improving. How can this be? <laughs> but I'm much more peaceful now than I, than I was before, much more at peace regardless. I can deal with more stressful situations than before. And so I've always started asking myself two questions when things are get difficult. What am I supposed to learn and how am I supposed to improve? And that could be a way to approach it if you're dealing with a difficult situation right now is really not be angry or depressed, but ask how can I be, how can my person, my character be improved what can I learn in this situation? And I think it shapes us and makes us better people, as unpleasant as it is. And that's the unfortunate part. Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't want to go through it again, but I had to, and it made me a better person. So so be it. Anyway, it looks like, you know, it's going to be a little, little rough right now, but I think a lot of wealth we've created over the next 12 plus months, as Michael said, uh, things have kind of stopped a little bit. We're waiting for things to normalize. People who are in distress will eventually have to sell in distress. And when the capital markets uh, stabilize, that will be a powerful combination. And we want to be prepared to buy as much property as we can. Man, I wish I would have started buying apartments in 2008. And we didn't get started until just a little bit later. But we're not going to do that this time around. And we're not getting into restaurants. Woo. All right. So that was pretty cool. Speaking of which, if you're interested in in, in learning more about investing in this asset class, uh, we definitely want to talk to you about that. Because, you know, the stock market is, is up and down, down, up. Uh, it's hard to make any kind of predictions, which you know, as the head of a household, it's very frustrating because I'm trying to make long-term financial plans and I can't do it with the stock market. Meanwhile, we have this multifamily syndications that are much more consistent and are not nearly as volatile. The returns are actually above the stock market historically. They pay cash flow and the tax benefits are extraordinary. So if you're interested in that, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Go ahead and join our investor club. Our company is called Nighthawk Equity. Uh, just head over to nighthawkequity.com and click the join button. You'll have a conversation with us and we'll see if this is the right for you. It may not be, but uh, if it is, uh, then we can share with you some upcoming opportunities that we, we may have. So we'd love to have the conversation with you. All right, guys, hope you found that valuable. Uh, stay safe, stay calm, and keep moving forward. See you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.